You are. you are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Super excited for today's guest, Neil Patel, Gary Vaynerchuk, Todd Brown, Damon John, J.P. Sears, Perry Marshall. Jay, welcome to Making Bank. What was one of your secret ingredients that you found that's made you so successful in your career so far as an entrepreneur? <laughs> I'm a really fast executor. Fast executor. Really execute extremely fast. That's it. That's one of my best qualities. Awesome. And so you find something and then you... And, just get out and do it. You don't sit there and try to study it and learn it. You just make it happen. Yeah, I don't even care if it's perfect or bad. <laughs> I just crank. Awesome. And that's, and that's a great thing. I think so many times as we try to roll out a project or do something, we're like, oh, this has got to be perfect. And then you're trying to get it right, trying to get it right. And all your competitors have gone by you because <laughs> you're still sitting there trying to get it right. So I think that's a great you know, strategy and a great tip is you know, grab it and start running with it. And just, you know, tweak and modify it as you go, you know, and that's going to help you become more successful in the long run. And you say you're working with Google, you know, helping drive more people, you know, to them now. How did you get to that position from where you were just starting out when you were 16, 17 years old? It really came down to word of mouth. So people will cool. be shocked. Uh, two things I learned. One, speaking at conferences, blogging, networking, like doing a bit of everything helps you get customers. The bigger clients. Sure tend to meet during conferences. There's just so many of those companies at these big events. Two, these big companies typically don't pay the best. The mid-sized <laughs> businesses are much more flexible with their budgets sure. and more likely to get them. The big companies spend the most money with the big agencies. If you're not one of those big agencies, you're not going to get the, you know, the majority of their budget. Right. But the middle-sized, medium-sized businesses, they're really flexible. If you can provide them an ROI, they're willing to pay you more. Okay, cool. So with the, with the bigger accounts, you know, you've connected with them at the events. More than likely, they don't pay well. <laughs> but for you and or anybody that wants to try to go after and work with them, it gives you a good resume builder. It's like, hey, you know, I'm working with Google, which leads into a lot of other opportunities for you. I'm betting. That's correct. What was another time you know that you've in your entrepreneurial career that you had a business or had a, you know, you were working on something and it just completely failed, just no matter how hard you tried to make it happen. There was a lot of businesses like that, right? Like uh, what was a hosting company? We we're trying to do cloud hosting before it was even popular. Okay. And it failed because we couldn't execute and get something out fast enough and we tried for so many years. But just like with everything, right? If you can't get something out fast enough or you can't figure it out, you're not going to succeed. Right. And yeah, not all businesses are meant to succeed. Look at Mark Zuckerberg, right? He's a smart guy. Not everything he's done has succeeded. Even Elon Musk, I bet you, he, you know, I don't know about any of his issues, but I bet you he's run into a lot of roadblocks, right? Right. Smart right. guy and probably will never be as successful as either of those two or anywhere near it. But what I'm getting at is even some of the most successful guys out there on the web or just in general in business have had their failures or their ups or downs or well. Sure. And what was the big component for you? You know, what did you learn from that? And what did you use to take to move yourself forward, you know, in the next business? We all make mistakes. Right. The key is it's not necessarily one learning experience that said, all right, I'm not going to do this in the next business. 
it's more so, hey, I made all these mistakes throughout my career. What could I do to avoid making the same mistakes over and over again? Sure. If you avoid making the same mistakes over again, you'll increase your odds of succeeding. Well, so <clears throat> one of the things, man, I know you talk a little bit about it in the book as well as on some of your shows and everything, is a whole family and kids. I mean, I have three kids myself and a wife. And I mean, like I said, before I met you, and really dove into who you were. I mean, I thought I was the badass hustler. <laughs> now it's like, oh man, this other guy, Gary's just crushing Is it giving you, you know, a lot of people are using me to get air cover with their husband or wife about how much they work. They're like, well, Gary, look how bad okay he is. Exactly. So, um, you know, how, how you do know, I deal with it? Yeah, because people talk about balance. I think that's, you know, bullshit. Cause, well, balance I mean, is it, personal. It's integration, I think it is. You know, and integration is, look, here's the real answer. I have no interest in telling people how to parent their children, right. and I have no interest in telling people how to manage their work-life balance with their spouse or their partner, right? Like, you know, every relationship is different. Like, yeah. you just, everybody's got their own stuff. And so, my key is to over-communicate with Lizzie. Like, that's what I have to do. What I have to do for a living is, it, for the most important thing is to over-communicate with my partner, and now as my children are six and three, and I can see it already, Misha's almost seven now, <laughs> You know, now Misha's got her opinions right. on, and I have to factor those in. And so it's constant adjustment. I'm working harder today than I did, more hours today than I did 36 months ago, but I may decline over the next seven to 10 years because those might be formative years for the kids or who knows. Or, and the truth is, or I may work more. Yeah. Like, or we, you know, we may find the balance of, you know, let's be insane about weekends and vacations and you know, my kids, my intuition is my kids are gonna be very over-programmed and they're gonna be on nine to five. Yep. And, and really not because we live in Manhattan but because there's so much they wanna do and there's so much you can do. And, and by the way, if they don't want to, that's fine too. But I think I, what my point with that little story is, is it's, a, it's communicating and adjusting daily sure. and that's how we deal with it. And I think that makes sense. I mean, because you can't really always know where it's going to be two weeks from now if or my a month dad from now. gets sick tomorrow i'm not going to work at all yeah like like i don't understand why people think like this is a thesis that can be your thesis <laughs> like 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 i don't know i'm working more now than i did in my 20s when yeah. i should have worked the most i i thought i worked a lot then yep. i was working 12 hours a day now i'm working more that blows my mind that was not something i could have ever foreseen are you going to work more as a 40-year-old man with two kids <laughs> than as a 24-year-old that wants to rule the world. No way I would have won that bet. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, and one of the things too I know you said you do is you, take, you, you integrate seven weeks of vacation yes. as well to really just totally de shut down, spend time with the family. As things increased on 15-hour days, yep. and I, could, I really, and to travel, I was like, okay, two weeks vacation is just not enough. Just net, net time. Yeah. Um, I think what I've done in these last three years as it's gotten crazy is been completely shut down on weekends. You know, even though right now as I'm yeah. addicted to Snapchat, <laughs> just talking to my friends here, sorry. Um, you could see on the weekends, like I'll sneak one in when I have to take Xander to the store just because I feel like I want to get something out there, but I'm really off, I'm really with the fam, I'm really focused, and then, and then on vacation, I've gotten really great. I've really started shutting down and That's really awesome. all in. And, Look, it might be not enough for some people, it might be enough for other people. I don't know, I mean, when I think about 52 weeks and I can get, you know, 12%, I mean, it feels right. like a lot of time. It feels like a lot of time. And so we just bought a summer home. 
So I'm gonna try to work from home on Fridays now and do calls and interviews, not Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, try to stack them in on Friday. Yeah. So by five o'clock maybe I could be, that's another six hours that I'm buying back to family that I never did before because of that new variable. So it's just adjusting. And the key is, you know, is being present. And you know, when you're totally shutting down. The key, the key is to be happy with yourself. Right. Like I have no interest in making you happy about my work-life balance. You worry about your work-life balance. Like my key is first me, and this is in order, then my kids and my wife, because if I'm happy, then I can do anything for them, and that's it. Right. And that's what, I, that's what matters. And, and if this feels good for now, then great. And that's it. And the only thing that can waver from what I want to do is a real belief that I'm doing the wrong thing by my family because uh, either my daughter, my, my son, or my wife tell me they're very unhappy with the allocation that I'm giving right now. But like my wife ended up being way more independent than I thought. Yeah. Like I never saw that coming. I didn't see my wife being like, I secretly think my wife has a separate husband somewhere. She's just so not into me. Lizzie, come on. Like she's so independent. She's on her stuff and like that pro- clearly makes it work too. Definitely. And that's the same with the way my wife is. I think I just who I attracted. Yeah. And I think that's yeah, probably that's, right. Because that's the way I was as yeah. well. So, and that, you know, it kind of leads me, you know, I know that you talk about like, don't be me. Be you. Can you dive into a little bit more? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, you, you're, you're out there you know, hustling hard. I'm and people super, wanna... I'm super pumped with like the attention and admiration that I'm getting, but it scares me because I don't want people to do what I'm doing because I know that I'm very. First of all, I feel like I'm an extremely unique dude. Yeah. I've always been unique my whole life. I've always done stuff so differently, so it doesn't feel like I'm a good blueprint for a lot of people. Like, it doesn't feel practical. It doesn't feel practical that you can work 18 hours a day without eating or drinking. You know, this is why I've been throwing around the robot emoji on my social lately because my brother coined this a long time ago inside the family and now I'm, because of Daily V, my daily vlog, where people really see it's true. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think I'm a good comp. Sure. And so I think you have, but I'm happy for me and I want people to be happy for them. And, and if that means nine to five, and if that means 49,000 a year in income, and you're happy as hell, well then you've won. Because I've got miserable friends making $10 million sure. a year. Oh yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people out there that they're in a, an employee role somewhere yeah. and they're like, oh, you know, I, I would like to, they have that entrepreneurial itch in them somewhere but they don't know how to actually implement it. I mean, I think that's a phenomenal way is, you know, be that shining star within your company. Go out and figure out how to make that seven-figure department or that take that department yeah. to that next level and, and, and then look where it takes you now, so... Yeah, and I would say this. Let me just give a you know uh, a piece of uh, encouragement to the folks that are listening that still have a full time gig. So there's a couple things. So number one, I had a full time job, I had a full time gig, and it was a demanding gig. So sure. I was in like a a position where there a, a bulk of my compensation was bonus driven, commission driven, and so it wasn't necessarily a nine to five gig. But so I started my business on the side, and early in the morning, late at night, and on weekends, I I worked on the business. I made sure that when I was working during my my work hours, the hours that I was allocating towards the company that I was working for, that I was giving 100%. Right. I, you know, like, so you do right by the company that you're, you're working for. And so even if you're not in a position where you can utilize your new marketing chops, your new marketing knowledge, your sales skills, um, that's okay. You work your job with diligence, focus on the side, you... Um, you can build your business. 
The other thing that I tell people that surprises them is one, two things actually. When I started my business, I only started with 850 bucks. I never oh, invested wow. another dime <laughs> of my money. Like I decided it was 850, $850, which I used back then to like form a corporation, sure. get a merchant account, like crazy which stuff. Which was the bulk of it probably. <laughs> yeah, which was the bulk of it, exactly. Um, and I never invested another dime of my own money to this day, actually. That's Everything was, boot, was bootstrapped. The other thing was that for a year, I did not take any money out of the business. So for an entire 12 months, every dime that we generated, that I generated, went back into learning and growing the business in terms of traffic. So it was reinvested back in for 12 months. I wasn't trying to, you know, go full time in a month or six right. weeks. I knew that it was I, was, I was playing the long game and I was willing to put in. And then when the time was right, which you'll know it, um, then I was able to, to, to walk away from a great job to a great business. No, that, and that's, I think that's some excellent advice. Cause you know, we sometimes, you know, I've talked to people in that same position, they feel trapped and they just, how do I get out of that? Or they feel, um, that they're doing disservice to the company that they're at. Yeah, you know, because yeah. they don't want to take away from that. But I think that's some great advice for sure. Yeah, you don't have to. If you work a nine to five, if you work an eight to six job, whatever it is, you work that job with diligence, with 100% focus while you're there. There are a lot of hours in a day, you know, yeah. and, and right, like there's a lot of hours in a day. Don't, you know, you could uh, invest, you know, 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes at night, you get 90 minutes every day. And then, of course, you've got the Saturday, certainly to invest a, a bunch of time um, in your business, a lot of time. And today, uh, it's never been easier, especially online to start sure. a business with all the tools and technology and resources. It's never been easier, more efficient, uh, you know, today than uh, it's never been. I mean, today it's so simple. And so, yeah. You uh, listed in there five shark points and how to apply them towards massive success. Uh, maybe you can give us one or two of those to kind of key us in on some awesome stuff. Sure. My five sharp points is, is very similar to S-H-A-R-K, of course. Uh, yep. The first one is set goals. You have to set goals. You have to set goals on how much time you're going to put in this. You know, you should not go out and stop your, uh, quit your day job and then just start a whole new business. That's not the right thing to do. I understand you, people have to pay the bills, so don't quit the day job. But are you going to put in Two hours a week, four hours a week, nine hours a week, and then are you going to revisit in six months? You know, uh, on on talking about on your new venture and say, after I put in this amount of time, <clears throat> what's the milestone that I want to hit to then move on to do it another six months? Because if you sure. don't set goals, you are going to let other people set goals for you. They're going to tell you that you can't do this, you can't do that. You're going to embarrass yourself. You're going to embarrass us. So you have to have a mile marker, no matter what, personal goals as well as business goals, and. Another thing in there, um, another one of my sharp points is about you have to absolutely love what you do. Right. You know, you as a broadcaster, I'm sure that you love empowering people. Anybody out there right now, anytime they've been successful, whether in their relationship or whether in business, they were doing something they absolutely love. I would make clothes for the rest of my life for free and dress people for free if I could because I get a high off of seeing people wear something that I created for them and made them feel like they finally arrived. So um, you have to absolutely love what you If you do it for money, you most likely are never going to make the money. You may end up in the wrong place for the money or you're going to, when you make the money, you're going to blow it. Yeah, for sure. And that, you know, and, and that's, those are very valid points. I know my wife kind of started her business when we had our first daughter and it was about a necessity of trying to create skincare product that didn't have all the crap in them. 
And right. we started it in um, 2008 and just now, I mean, you know, and then rebranded in 2012 under the paleo and it just took off. And I mean, we've last year we did over 1.2 million and she's just grinding at it every day and hustling. And But she probably, it's like Christmas every day when you think about yeah. the new product you made or you found another ingredient that is natural yeah. and safe and you're like, wow, I can improve this. And you like to tell everybody it's fun, you know? Oh, yeah. And that's what she has every day. It's just fun for her to, to go do it and to see the people when she gets those re responses back like, wow, this is amazing. When you run a business, it is purely, it is like your child. Yeah. And, you know, if, if your child, you know, the three, the, the three times a month that you have to show up to the ER because your child has a, a, a hearing infection, an ear infection at two in the morning, you don't just give your child up for adoption. Right. You know, maybe Kevin O'Leary does. But other than that, most of us don't give our child up for adoption. And that's the same thing as a business. You're going to find aches and pains and you're going to figure out how to solve it. I always say that mothers are the ultimate startup. They bring this beautiful, uh, you know, this beautiful being into the world and they figure it out. I don't care how many books you sure. read on parenting, it doesn't work. Yep. You have to figure it out because each beautiful child is different. Definitely. No, and that's, that's the truth. What's one habit that you've, you know, contributed to your success? Um, setting goals. Setting Purely goals. setting goals. I read this amazing book when I was young. I was 16 years old. It's called, and it's, it's probably the book that uh, attributed to uh, most of the people, uh, more people that are successful have read this book than any other book. It's called Think and Grow Rich. I'm sure, Josh, you've read it. Yes. Um, by Napoleon Hill, the original one. And when he talked about goal setting in there, I didn't understand it at first, but because I'm dyslexic, I read the book every year. Um, and after about the fourth time reading it, I absorbed the, the information the right way. And I started setting goals when I was 16. They started to kick in when I was about 22. And before you knew it, I had what most people would call a, a level of success that everybody attributes to. By the age of 27, 28, I was worth several million dollars. And I attributed to that book and that book alone. I definitely have to agree 100%. One of the things, you know, for me, you definitely want to know what kind of what is that? What did that process look like that got you to where you're like, oh, yeah, this is my purpose. This is, you know, this is that direction. You know, what what were maybe those steps or that process that went through your mind to actually get you to where you are? Yeah, well, uh, my one word summary would be action. Uh, I think a mistake I was making in my late teens and early 20s is trying to find my purpose and then take action. And I, I think that if I, I kept myself there, I'd still be waiting uh, to take action because I, I, at least in my journey, and I think a lot of people's journeys that I've had association with, we tend to find our purpose, our passion. Once we start taking action, but the, I think the, the, the sense of control we're after is like, no, we, I want to find my purpose so I can be guaranteed that my actions are going to be fruitful to my purpose. It's like, well, you can do that, but just have a comfortable chair. Cause you're going to be waiting to take action for a lot of decades. So I started taking action when I was 20, late teens, actually, I became a personal trainer and got passionate about exercise and that was like a gluten-free breadcrumb trail that then got me interested in nutrition. I was like, wow, if exercise is a powerful way to help people's health, nutrition is like five times more powerful. So I got passionate about nutrition, but it wasn't like the end game of my passion. Then nutrition 
was part of the gluten-free breadcrumb trail that got me interested in stress reduction. It's like, wow, I thought nutrition could make a powerful impact on people's health uh, and my health. But wow, reducing stress, it's like intangible, but so impactful. And then stress reduction then led me into like genuine emotional healing with people looking directly into, you know, not just the superficial stress stresses, but the really the matters of the heart. So me taking action on things that were like they were exciting to me, but they weren't deeply, deeply purposeful to me. That action is what led me into my purpose. And I needed that breadcrumb trail or else like, you know, when I was 19, if you said, JP, how would you like to do emotional healing work and uh, teach people personal empowerment? I'd say, get out of here. That stuff is useless. That's, that's, that's for weak women and monks. Um, so I, I needed the action of doing what I wasn't deeply purposeful uh, about, deeply passionate about, to find that which really spoke to my heart. I don't think the purpose of our life is to sit around and think about what our purpose is. I think there's a reason why we're like in this, like three, we have this three dimensional ability. Like, yes, we can think and that's awesome. Uh, Yes, we can talk and that's awesome. But like, there's this more impactful thing called action. It's very three dimensional. And I think, you know, our, our purpose is always action oriented. And I think part of the purpose of action is to, eventually lead us to uh, our real purpose. It's like searching for a buried treasure without moving our feet. It's like, well, it's like you've got like a, a you know a six foot radius that you potentially can scour without moving your feet, but that leaves the rest of the earth completely unsearched. I guess knowing from you know what you believe and then also being self-aware, you know more, the more self-aware you are, and I, it was funny, I just had a, a good talk with Gary Vaynerchuk uh, last week, and we were talking about self-awareness. And, and so, it, uh, you know, I think this helps open up people's eyes and gives them a whole other uh, way to really connect those two sides of the spectrum, as you mentioned, for sure. I, here's a statement. You don't have to believe it, but go chew on this for a while. Evolution requires self-awareness. Right. Now, humanly speaking, I think probably we could all agree on that. I would like to suggest, I I can't prove this, I don't know for sure, but I have a suspicion that all cells are on some level self-aware. You know, if if you watch a YouTube video of the white blood cells going and eating the germs, right? watch them, just watch that. Watch that and go, well, is that just like a chemical reaction or is there like something very intentional going on there? Sure. I think there's something very intentional going on there. I I think living things are much more sophisticated than most people have ever given them credit for. And and, in some ways, the lady that works in her garden, I think, may have more respect for nature than the scientist who's doing experiments in a lab. Does, yeah, that would be true. I mean, it makes sense because you're working with So I think things. we can learn a lot from nature. And, and, and as a, a kind of an unrelated note, just 
I think mo most modern people don't spend enough time in nature. And, and <laughs> I think, you know, if I could give anybody a suggestion of one thing you ought to do this year is ditch your cell phone, ditch your laptop, go hiking, go to the mountains, go on a kayak or, or something and spend some time with actual nature. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, when I do that, it is so restorative and um, like you can learn about nature in a science book. You can also learn about nature by being there. That's, that's, that's a way. Yeah. I suggest. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. It's, I mean, as technology advances and, you know, I mean, in, you know, owning your own business, a lot of times you become trapped in that cycle and you're not able to, get out and experience the things that you created the business for in the first place. And that's one of the things I try to talk and work with entrepreneurs on is, you, you know, putting that down. And I mean, I know for myself personally, just trying to take our kids and get out and they love hiking and they love getting out in nature. And so it's cool because it helps force that like, okay, I know I want to go do that. And, and we go take that time and spend, you know, with them out in nature. It makes a huge difference. And I mean, from a personal standpoint on how you feel and then being able to come back and reconnect and interact and do the things that you do best. So, yeah. So that that's, that's really high on my list, and I make time to do that. I hope hope other people will. I I think uh, also, you know, your your creativity really starts to loosen up, and you know, you're hiking up the mountain, and all of a sudden, like you have a little insight, and right. hopefully, you got some way to write it down or not lose it. Um, you know, we have a we have a little um, waterproof paper pad in our shower, so. And, and I actually use it. Uh, it was a birthday gift. And like, this is a good idea. Um, the best ideas usually come when you're not expecting them. That's the truth, for sure. You were mentioning on the whole, you know, mediocre and great greatness and everything. And I know a lot of our audience, you know, strives to, you know, that next level of higher performance, that greatness. Uh, you know, what what are some strategies that you, you know, part of your process that you talked about? Well, the first thing is, is you're not, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a, a metaphor of a very dear friend of mine who's brighter than I. He says most entrepreneurs, when they're either excited or stressed, dig holes. And they dig holes faster and faster, the more excited, the more stressed they are. He said, the first question you have to ask yourself is, uh, should I be digging a hole? Second question is, if yes, should I be digging it there? Third is, if yes, should I be digging it with a spoon or with a power draw? Third, <laughs> fourth is, no matter what the answer is, should I be the one digging it since most entrepreneurs are tactical and need to be strategic? But uh, I'll tell you what, I mean, because I, I know you have limited time, so I'll go on a descending order. We have, we, we're known for a couple of things. We're known for the three ways to grow business. All my, my life work has been understanding how to, how to focus on the geometry of a business, how to make things, you know, not just perform higher for the same cost, time, effort, opportunity cost, capital, human capital, but also how to get it to go longer. So, you know, we created the three way to grow a business model and it's very simple. Uh, you want to grow your business you know, geometrically. There's three ways. One is you increase the number of, of prospects and buyers. Number two, prospect conversions, buyers. Number two is you increase the ethically 
the size of the transaction. Number three, you increase the frequency or the utility of the transaction. And there goes a model that shows that it goes from, you know, it's asymmetric. So the first thing is, is how to do that. Are you doing it? There's about 30 ways in each category to do it. And I can't, but that's the first thing. The second thing is what I have done for more of my clients than anything else, because if you think about marketing, marketing to the outside market, no matter what the vehicle, whether it's Facebook, whether it's a, a magazine ad, whether it's radio, TV, your show, the, the, the advertiser, the marketer is trying to establish first level, first level, peripheral uh, uh, veneer trust. And then, by the way, okay. we've got a lot of work we've done on trust. And the best thing I can tell anyone to read is Stephen M. R. Covey's books, Speed of Trust and Smart Trust, because he's he's the world authority on business trust building, and he's found ways clinically that if you master the arts of uh, and the science of trust, and your team does, you'll produce three hundred percent more yield, and you'll get your team working three hundred percent harder. So I don't mean to be tangential, but back at the ranch, the most important thing I can tell you that will shortcut anyone's journey to success and higher prosperity is strategic alliance, uh, alliances, power partnering and relationship. Figure out who already has the trust, the the credibility, the direct access, the, the, the distribution channel to the same market you want. And it's very different than the superficial affiliate concepts that people do. Right. And make, uh, I mean, make very strong relationships. When I told you about how we grew this, <clears throat> this uh, uh, investment firm, we went to every investment newsletter. Pardon me one second. <clears throat> we became part of their welcome kit. We 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 created a whole uh, a whole educational collection. Three four times a year, we paid for them to put out a special edition of the newsletter on our category of investment that we we commissioned three times a year we would pay to do seminars all over uh, the country in their behalf and gave them the money for the seminar because we wanted the audience uh, uh, when their marketing pieces stopped making money we would take them over and fund them for them and get joint tenancy of the names it's much more deeper than affiliate yeah. when i did seminars i did $250 million, not $100,000, $250 million, half billion dollars. And I, I think my total spend for the whole duration was $300,000 wow. over like two years because I went to Tony Robbins. I went to Success Magazine. I went to all the financial investment newsletters that had the entrepreneurs. I went to people that sold seminars. I went to people that sold uh, investment books or business books or career changing books. And I made them my partners. I went to everybody that sold expensive training and got them to recommend my programs to their non-conversion. And I, I used the goodwill, the credibility, and all the hundreds of millions of dollars that other people have spent to my advantage. And and there's a concept that I developed called leverage marketing. And it it, sure. it is it it looks at every element of the selling system and there's probably 25 or 30 impact points that most people don't even think about that can be leveraged up i'm just giving you a few answers i mean I yeah no that's on on. i don't know if this helps good stuff great content yeah. okay well no but i mean uh, they're just i mean most people don't realize this i've been very blessed you talk about my background i worked with uh, the deming organization who was the father of process improvement 
and optimization. And optimization is a really simple concept, but most people don't follow it. It's getting the highest and best use of your time, your effort, your people, your opportunity, your you know your access to a market, your your prospects, your buyers, uh, and you can't optimize unless you have a broader context of what's possible. Because the the truth of the matter is, if you study what most people do in most industries, their their marketing, their strategy, their business model their approaches are not the highest and best. They're oftentimes the poorest and least, but that's they're just following the herd. I've been blessed when you work. I mean, we did a study one time. It was scary. I think it's 7,125 different sub-industries we work with. But when you get that kind of a broad context, you look at what someone's doing, and you don't look at it with contempt or disdain, but you say, well, for the same effort, I'm going to give you a good, better example. Well, if the same effort, I'm finished. I'll give you an example. Same effort, same, same um, time, same people. You could get three times as much front end and maybe 10 times the back end. Wouldn't you rather do that? I'll give you a very simple example. I had a very large uh, furniture store one time. They were doing about $40 million. And they were running about $100,000 a month in ads. And they were getting about 1000 people to come to their store and they were they were closing x i don't remember what x was but we tested 33 different ways of greeting people at the front door wow. 33 and one tripled uh closures one triple <laughs> closures and i'll tell you what it was rather than being being uh secretive it's not what you would think so i'm not going to go through what you would imagine the winning one was and what ad brought you into the store today and we found was just an experiment. We didn't even think about the psychology, but by them answering that, you know, if you say, okay, can I help you? And they say, no, I'm just right. looking. But if you say, and what ad brought you in the store today? It evokes a knee jerk reaction. Oh, the Italian bedroom uh, suit that's uh, on sale with uh, the TV cabinet. Oh, is it the rest? It gives you, it gives the salesperson uh, ethical control of the situation sure. and the right to start a meaningful dialogue of inquisition or, or at least discovery inquisition sounds like Spanish, but a discovery <laughs> where they're able to go deep and say, Oh, is, is the rest of your house Italian? Is it a new, uh, new home? And, and by having that dialogue, it changed the whole context of the relationship. We, uh, I've gotten to look at, I also did uh Qualpro, which is the largest multivariable testing organization in the country. And I got to look at, at, at uh, you know, basically a uh, billion dollars worth of experiments they've done and everything from increasing uh, the effectiveness of, of customer service to retail positioning and the impact of, of placing things in different places and different facings I've done. And I'm not saying this arrogantly, but it gives you a context. I've done a company called Decision Quest, which is the largest strategic litigation consulting firm in the world. And they have 150 uh, PhDs, uh, psychologists and sociologists, and they look at everything from, uh, you know, the psychology of a jury, the psychology of the venue, the, you know, the different ways, depending on whether their client is, is on the, the receiving or the, or, the, or the plaintiff side. And they also look at how to depict pain and suffering, either, either as massive or, or minor. And when you get that kind of exposure, not counting all the, the, the real operating businesses I've been on the front lines of, you look at most entrepreneurs and you 
you realize that they unintentionally limit, restrict, uh, impede, constrain the uh, the amount of buyers they could be generating, the amount of sales they could be ethically doing, the amount of repurchases. We have 93 different ways to generate referrals that I have uncovered, and most people don't even have one. <laughs> yeah. And yet people are spending all this money on <clears throat> lame advertising to try to start the first external level of trust building, which has to be sequential unless you're selling something very cheap. And yet you got all these satisfied clients, hopefully, that have the capacity to generate for you instant credibility and people who are going to trust you and a referral generated buyer, number one, buys quicker, buys more things, buys more often, uh, negotiates less and and refers more people and almost nobody even, it costs nothing. Right. I go on and on and on, but (laughs) does this help? No, definitely. Thanks for your time again. And it was an honor to have you on Making Bank today. So I am Josh Felber. You were watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.